Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Um, we are gonna about to step into the video store with Barrett Fisher um, to talk about uh, the 1947 film Out of the Past. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks. Barrett, this is the exact type of movie that I wanted to do this project for. Um, this is the first one that we've watched that I've never seen before. In fact, I had never heard of this movie before. Um, so, and I, and I, and this was on your list of, of your, your sort of list of five movies you love. So maybe let's just start with why do you love this movie? Um, I love this movie because it's, it's, it's one of the finest examples of film noir and I love film noir. So that's in a sense kind of begging the question. Um, so that's where I'll leave it right now. I love the film because it's an example, exemplar of film noir. And so as we explore that, maybe that'll become clearer. Well, and that actually, that actually was the exact thing I, I wanted to talk about next, um, which is, uh, I'm just going to sort of hand you the ball on this. Can you kind of take us to film school a little bit and tell us what film noir is? What are the components of it? What makes a film noir? Um, film noir, first of all, initially film noir, which simply means black film. Um, it, it has that fancy French name because it was actually named by uh, French critics and, and film goers who uh, were watching these movies uh, from America in the post-World War II period at the same time that they're reading a lot of detective fiction, which a lot of the noirs are based on, which is certainly the case with Out of the Past. Um, but they're called black films because they, for two reasons, first of all, in terms of their mood and their themes, right, they're often uh, pessimistic, fatalistic, they often have an air of atmosphere, uh, a couple of the main themes are alienation and obsession, and I think you can see all those things in Out of the Past. So they're often called, there are noirs for that reason. Um, they're also called noirs because typically they, they uh, feature a lot of, uh, they're generally black and white, and they feature a lot of photography that deals, it uses low key lighting uh, that ha works a lot with shadows, even uh, chiaroscuro, you kind of see that a lot in Out of the Past. And in Out of the Past, you get this very strong contrast between these bright, sunny outdoor scenes, which are associated with uh, Jeff and Anne's relationship. And then you have all the very uh, dark and shadowy and contrasty scenes, which feature Jeff's relationship with, with Kathy. So noir, it's, noir. It's, funny, it, it's funny you mentioned that because when the movie first started and it was sort of this idyllic, like almost rural, small town, I actually had the thought of, did I... Did I rent the wrong movie? Because <laughs> I thought, wasn't well, this supposed to be like like detectives and and stuff like this? And then and then the movie happened. I was like, oh yeah, it is that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I got worried when it first started. Yeah, in in fact, in fact, that, 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 I'm glad you mentioned that because it's interesting that the movie opens with a crane shot of uh, Joe's car, you know, driving into Bridgeport. And like you said, it's nice and bright and sunny. And then the, the turn in the movie is also another scene in a car uh, where as, as uh, Jeff and Ann are driving to Witt's place, right? And it's dark. And then he, and then he goes into another very characteristic element of noir, which is the voiceover. Uh, and he does that long 40 minute flashback. And noir is, uh, is famous for using a voiceover as a way of kind of getting into the mind of the, the protagonist. The, uh, the the classic noir period is usually seen as being from about 1941 with a film like the Maltese Falcon to um, usually most people put the end of the of the classic noir period at about 58 with Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, which is another one of my favorite films. Um, and in that period, there were hundreds of noirs made by all the, the Hollywood studios, both the big studios and the small studios. So what is it about um, sort of 
post-war America that's drawn to this? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, in fact, one one description of noir is uh, is this, is one critic has called it a true cultural reflection of the mental dysfunction of a nation in an uncertain transition. So often, uh, often noir expresses either explicitly or implicitly um, concerns about how do we adjust this post-war world. Often, characters in noir are sometimes amnesiacs. Uh, sometimes they, or or as is the case of Jeff, they're haunted by this by this past. Sometimes they're veterans, in fact. Um, so it is sort of a nation trying to figure out what does it mean as they as we began to move from World War II, you know, ultimately towards the Cold, Cold War, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to, to, to be the nation that we are now? So why in, the, why in the late 50s do we see this die out? Well, I guess you could say, uh, late, you know, by the end of the 50s, uh, we've had eight hours of Eisenhower, eight years of, of Eisenhower, and America's becoming prosperous. And um, even though we are going into the Cold War, we're also going into it with a much greater sense of, um, I think, maybe self-confidence. Uh, than we had uh, in, in in the late 40s. Uh, and so then you start getting, and also uh, just in terms of movie technology, there, there's, a, there's a rise of color films, technicolors, uh, demand for kind of uh, big, big screen extravaganzas to compete with television. So the whole entertainment uh, milieu is changing quite a bit as well. And I know this is a this is a a very uh, beloved genre in film um, by by certain filmmakers. Can you think of post nineteen fifty eight films that actually do this well? That sort of revive this idea? Yeah, probably. Uh, there's a couple of film films I would say. Well, actually, there's several, but uh, maybe most notably, uh, John Huston's Chinatown would be a good example. And the Kathy Moffat character in Out of the Past is kind of a model for the Faye Dunaway character in that film. Uh, or something like, uh, I, I think, you know, Brian Singer's uh, Usual Suspects. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, there are films, you know, sometimes they're called neo-noirs. I think the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple is another really strong uh, neo-noir. Uh, there's a film that uh, Clive Owen was in early in his career called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, uh, which is a great neo-noir. And then I think to invoke another one of my favorite directors, I think that Lynch has a, David Lynch has a very noir sensibility, especially in uh, Mulholland Drive or, uh, or um, uh, a couple of other, other of his films. They all have a very noir feel to it, Endless Highway. So, so in, your, in your mind, is this the, um, is this the, the peak of noir? Uh, a film like Out of the Past, at least personally for you? Or? I, I, yeah, I, I think it, maybe the best way to put it is, I think it's, I think it's the peak of a certain type of noir. Uh, often often the, the two greatest noirs of this mo of this uh, period are considered Out of the Past and then a Burt Lancaster film called Crisscross, uh, which is another great film. But I was looking at, I, I was looking at my, my list, uh, um, Sam, because I thought maybe I should, you, know, you might ask me, what are my other favorite noirs? And I was, I was, I was looking at my list, and it's interesting how so many of them are right around 1950. Um, hmm. uh, these four films all came out in 1950, and I think they're great noirs, and they're very different noirs. Gun Crazy, which is kind of a B, almost a C-budget film. Uh, Night in the City, which is a very sophisticated film set in London, in a lonely place, which is, to me, Bogart's greatest performance. That's Bogart with Gra uh, Gloria Graham, another great noir actress. Uh, and then Sunset Boulevard, uh, which I absolutely love with William Holden and Gloria Swanson. And that's Billy Wilder, who had also had a very kind of noirish sensibility. Now, I will say, like I said, I haven't seen a lot of, of um, film noir movies. Um, I've seen The Maltese Falcon. Um, 
and a couple of the other ones you named. But I definitely feel like films that I've seen in my life have been impacted by people who have been in love with elements of, of film noir. Um, so there were definitely things in this that I was like, oh, that sort of looks familiar. That feels familiar. If I were to have seen, if we were to go to this movie and it was 1947 and we were we had been living in 1947, what would have st maybe stood out to us that when you're watching this movie in 2020, it feels like, oh, I've seen this kind of thing before. Is there, was there, is there anything sort of different or novel in 1947 that maybe wouldn't have landed in the same way? Well, I think that what you identified at the beginning, um, I think the way, I can't think of other noirs at this time that were playing quite so much with the contrast between the light and the dark. That is the entire setting as this film was. And the, the other thing is that the use of dark and light in this in this film is actually, um, there aren't a lot of the, a lot of the deep shadows that characterize a lot of noirs. You know, this is this is much more, as I said earlier, it's much more of a chiaroscuro effect. Um, and there's not quite as much. It's interesting, even though there's a lot of smoking in this film, as uh, as Roger Ebert says, the characters smoke at each other. Uh, there there isn't quite as much uh, use of the lighting and the smoke that you often get in uh, in, in noirs. But I, I think the I think this the 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 contrast between the, the Bridgeport uh, setting and to a certain extent the Lake Tahoe setting uh, and the San Francisco and the Acapulco settings, um, that's a, a wider range of setting than you typically see in a lot of noir. Otherwise, uh, you know, people, uh, this is a classic Mitchum role. Uh, people would have expected Mitchum. Um, I, I would say that uh, Kirk Douglas was at this point still a relatively new face. This is only uh, Douglas's second film. Uh, uh, and so, so this, that maybe would have been new to people to see, uh, and, and Jane Greer was rather new as well. I will say Kirk Douglas was probably my favorite part of this film. I love seeing like a really young Kirk Douglas. There was something very familiar about him and it's probably thinking about even thinking about Mike, Michael Douglas films that I've seen, but there's something about him young. And I love that character because as you're about to be introduced with him, introduced to him. I, I had this sense of this guy's going to be really menacing. And then he wasn't, which kind of made him more menacing. And when he shows up in Mexico, I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's great, there's just great chemistry between him and Mitchum. Um, and, and, and in fact, one of the, one of my favorite little moments in the, in the, in the movie is when Mitchum walks into the room and um, Douglas offers him a cigarette and Mitchum says smoking. Uh, that was entirely ad-libbed. <laughs> so it just, they were definitely on the same wavelength. So um, another thing that I think, as I've read a little bit about film noir, that is a, a, a pretty common thing to these stories is sort of the, the plots that just keep twisting and twisting and twisting. And everything that I've read sort of says, like, don't worry too much about that stuff as you're watching the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I presume this is a movie you've seen many times in your life, right? Are you going to ask me to explain the plot? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I, I, I'm not asking you that. What I'm asking you is, does that, do you get more into the plot as, because I've only seen this once, like when you watch it a second, a third, a fourth time, do you get sort of into, can I sort of figure this out or do you still not worry about it? Um, actually, that's a, that's a really good question because I actually went into the film this time, maybe this is the fourth or fifth time I've seen it saying, I'm finally gonna figure out the la those last 10 minutes. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I follow the San Francisco plot pretty well until the point where Jeff comes back. And then I'm, I'm like, I'm not really clear why they want to kill him when they don't have the documents. Um, so, and, and of course, there's, there's examples of other noirs where, where famously not even uh, Raymond Chandler, who wrote The Big Sleep, not even Raymond Chandler said he understood the, the entire plot. So there, so there is part of it, Sam, where you, you do just kind of let go of, of the logic and you, you're watching more for the emotion, if, if I can put it that way. Absolutely. And I will say that's one of the things that I really loved about this movie. I'll reveal something about myself. I am probably one of the only people in the world who doesn't really like murder mysteries. Mm. I don't, and, and here's why, because I love somebody telling me a story. And when someone's telling me a story, I don't feel like, I feel like they're they're entertaining me. They're telling me the story. They're not saying, hey, try to get ahead of me and figure this out before I get to the end. Like I like to let the story play mm. out. So I'm not obsessed with trying to solve the problems. Um, if we're thinking about sort of even classic that uh tv detectives i love columbo more than anyone because you know who did it before mm -hmm. columbo shows up and it's more about like the story of how he figures it out but mm -hmm. I, I i don't love who done it's that those don't mm -hmm. for some reason so this was great because i didn't feel like i needed to figure out a lot of things instead it was just like i loved when they're in the car uh, driving to Tahoe and he tells the story and you go into that i mean that's when the movie really all of a sudden picks up and when that story ended about halfway through the movie, I forgot that we were in flashback. I forgot mm -hmm. he was telling me a story because I was just so into that. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that the movie has those sort of two halves uh, that way too. The timeline was was really fantastic what they mm -hmm. did there. was is, is that the kind of thing that you'll you see a lot in films like this or? Yeah, yeah, that is, that is yeah, a lot, a lot a lot of flashback and a lot of kind of complex timelines. That's not in the usual. Okay. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting as I was looking at this, uh, the director, uh, Turnow, is that how you say it? Turnure. 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 Yeah. Um, his, the, the films he made before this were in oh, yeah. the horror genre more, right? Yeah, he worked with Val Luton. Val Luton was, was famous in the 40s for making um, low budget but very effective uh, scary films like uh, Cat People, uh, I watched, which, which was actually remade with Natasha Kinski. Uh, I watched with the zombie, the leopard man. And, and what's interesting about those films is they are so low budget and they they rely for most of their effects actually on lighting. Uh, and so they, they actually have a noirish style to them. And it's too bad that uh, Turnier did not really turn his attention to many more. Uh, he made one more film that might be classified as a noir, but otherwise he was kind of a, kind of a journeyman director. His father, Maurice, was a very famous French film director who made made hundreds of films, but you know, is there any relationship between horror and noir? <laughs> um, I, I guess you could say there's, there's there's a relationship in this in the sense that both horror and noir explore kind of um, dark places in the human experience and the human psyche. And I guess I, if I if I could stretch a point, because one of the elements of noir we haven't touched on is the femme fatale. Uh, and, I, and I guess you could say that, in a sense, the monstrous in, in noir is often is often the woman. Um, and what's interesting in, in Out of the Past, and this is un, not unusual in noir, but I think Out of the Past does this as well as any film, and that is you get the, the contrast between the two competing women, which become kind of two competing elements of the protagonist himself. Uh, and one of my favorite exchanges in the film is, is towards the end where... Um, Anne, for whatever reason, is trying to 
trying to stick up for Kathy. And she says to Jeff, she can't, she can't be all bad. No one is. And he says, well, she comes the closest. <laughs> <laughs> which, which touches on another element of noir, which is so characteristic of Out of the Past, and that is really snappy dialogue, really smart writing. Uh, but that but that femme fatale figure, which, you know, another kind of iconic example would be Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, which is another really, really great, another kind of classic noir as well. Um, so I, I you, you've talked a lot um, both today uh, a little bit, but then also when you first recommended this film um, about Robert Mitchum. And I just want to clear out and tell me why is he great in this film? Okay, I'll, I'll, let me tell you. What, 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 I, I could say in a, in a word, anybody who can who can say a line like "Build my gallows high, baby," and 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 make it sound plausible has pulled off something. <laughs> which, of course, uh, the reason he says that line is that's the name of the the book, the novel on which the film is based. Right, "Build my gallows high." Um, I, I think Mitchum is is great in the role and as an actor because he's so good at. Um, He's so good at a kind of passivity that mm -hmm. at the same time has a kind of energy to it. You know, he spends a lot of time in this film um, sitting back, observing, listening, reacting. Uh, really about the only time he gets really physical is in the fight with Fisher. Um, otherwise, you know, for most of this film, he's, um, he's a very quiet kind of coiled spring. Um, and yeah, I think- I would, I would say- one of the other times where he where, where he uncoils a little bit, not in a physical way, but when he's at uh, Eels's apartment, mm. and all, and he just like all of a sudden he he moves to talking really fast and sort of and and and, and like revealing things, you know, because mm. he and it's it's and it's when he's kind of revealing to us, here's what here's the part I've kind of figured out, and like so that was also I feel like an interesting moment in in terms of where where I feel like he shifted. Right, and, and and I think that combination of passivity and energy is sort of helps. I, to me, it fits well with the um, kind of the dilemma he's in as a character. Right, there's this kind of passivity about him when he's with Kathy, the way he just kind of gives in to Kathy, and then there's a, there's a more of an energy in his pursuit of Anne, and he's kind of caught between those two. And I think he and I think he's able to do that well. I think you're able to believe that this guy can can do both. Um, and, and do both in a way that in some sense is actually true to himself. I mean, I, I think he truly does care for Anne, and yet I think he's truly entrapped by, um, by Kathy. And he, he, and so he plays it both ways, and I think it works. Um, have you ever read the uh, Daniel uh, Mainwaring novel, Build My Gallows High? No, I, I, I never have. Um, I, have to, I have to say that most sources of noir films by reputation are not particularly good books. Um, I mean, they, they're usually real kind of Pulp Fiction-y stuff. Well, that's uh, actually what, one of the things I wondered, like, is this uh, a genre that lends itself better to film than it does to to the written word or? Well, actually, I, I, okay, now I have, to, I have to contradict myself though and say, on, on the other hand, you also have, a, a, I don't know what you want to call highbrow Pulp Fiction, right? People like, uh, like, like Chandler uh, and uh, Dashiell Hammett. Uh, who both I think wrote good books and wrote good films, but no, I, I think I think it it lends itself to being filmed particularly well just because they're such because they're interesting characters and interesting plots and and you can create this this really great dialogue um, around them. So I think you can be true to the source and have a really good film, or you can just kind of 
play off the source and end up with a really good film. Mm -hmm. um, have you, so this, this movie uh, and was remade in 1984 uh, in a film that I've also never seen. Um, have you ever seen the 1984 film Against All Odds? Yeah, I did. And I thought uh, I wasn't particularly impressed by it. And I thought it was quite a bit different from out of the past. And so I have relatively little memory of that film, except that I didn't think much of it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because I'm interested in it as an artifact now to be like, oh, mm. I'd actually be, I'd be curious what a, what a 1984 remake of this would be like, or attempt to sort of take something from this and, and, and remake it would be like. Um, generally, how do you feel about, about actually, the... uh, let me, let me insert Sam another, and now you said that about 1984, um, a couple years before that in the 83, 82, there's the film body heat by Lawrence Kasdan. That's, that's another good neo-noir. So I think it's, it's possible to make decent noirs, even in color. Mm -hmm. Um, generally, how do you feel about the idea of, of, uh, when a film gets remade? whether it's over a, from a, a short period of time or a long period of time, especially if it's a film you the, where the original is something you love. Has that ever gone well in your mind? Yeah, it has actually. Um, in fact, I actually conceived of a film course I never got to teach that would consist entirely of remakes. Hmm. Um, and, and the goal of the, of the course was to try to find both an original and a remake that I thought were great films. Um, I think it depends a lot on the sensibilities of the filmmaker. Um, one, one example of a really good remake is um, uh, the Christopher Nolan film with um, Robin Williams. That uh, Oh, Insomnia. Uh, Insomnia. Yeah. There, so there's a Norwegian original, um, and I think they're both really great films. Uh, so I think, I think, it's, I think it's possible, uh, but it's hard. Um, you know, so the notable failures like uh, Gus Van Sant doing uh, – it wasn't really a re I mean, it wasn't really a remake. It was a reshooting of, of Psycho, which, to be frank, I didn't watch. I'm going to disparage right. it. I, mean, I didn't watch it. So, yeah, but I, I think I think it's possible. But at the same time, there are some films that are so close to perfection uh, that I'm not sure you really should attempt to remake them. Yeah, and I I sort of even wonder what the the motivation of a of a filmmaker to, cause I presume if you're remaking something, it's probably because it's something either, well, it's either something you love or something you felt like was a missed opportunity. And those seem like kind of different things, but, or, but especially or, if you're remaking something you love. Or it's, or it's, or it's something so good that you, you feel it needs to be uh, milked again. I mean, I think the most notable example of that would be the four different versions of a star is born. Sure. Um, and, and each version, in a sense, kind of for its own decade. So one in the 30s, one in the 50s, one in the 70s, and then one in the 2010s. Um, and I think each of those films is, is actually quite, it's the same plot, but it's quite distinctively different. And so sometimes it makes sense, in a way, to kind of update it for your, for your time. Certainly. Uh, do you want to talk about the end of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> in what, in, what, what do you want me to say about it? Uh, just, just how, uh, <laughs> as somebody who only, who's only seen this once, um, and like you said, it it, 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 there, it definitely it picks up speed at the end, and there's lots of stuff that happened. And like, what, what do you make of the end of this movie? Oh well, um, a couple ways to think about it. I mean, I mean, one way to think about it is that it, it's a movie to a certain degree about um, a fatal obsession, a fatal compulsion. And, you know, in Hollywood films, especially those made under the Hayes Code, uh, you have to punish the bad guys. So Kathy has to die. There's no doubt about that. 
and then uh, Jeff has to die because of his complicity with with Kathy. So there's a, there's a sense in which the ending is simply um, the way that Hollywood has to deal with uh, transgressors. So uh, the the law the law ultimately has to win. But at the same time, um, Jeff Jeff and Kathy have to die because he's right in the sense that they are made for each other. Uh, and since uh, since the only the only way this can end is uh, is badly, they have to really they have to really go go down together. How about the ending with with Anne? Right, that's right. actually the la the final right, shot. Yeah, of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, actually thinking of what actually works is a, is a coda. Um, right, and there's that yeah, there's that wonderful moment when she, uh, you know, when she confronts the kid, and you wonder, you know, is he going to tell the truth or is or is he going to lie? And uh, he tells her the you know the the fact the fact that he tells her that the truth is um, kind of delivers her uh, from. Uh, well, you 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 wonder how she's going to process that, but obviously she gets in Jeff's car, in Jim's car, and off she goes. Which actually, one of the things I saw afresh this time, Sam, is that the film is composed of a whole bunch of intersecting uh, triangular relationships, hmm. um, and Jeff is the one constant in all of those triangles. So one of the most obvious triangles is the Jeff Kathy. Wit triangle versus the Jeffy Jeff and Kathy triangle, and so the ending, in a sense, kind of resolves uh, both of those triangles. You know, it kills off Jeff and Kathy, and then leaves, um, and then leaves Anne and, and and Jim, which is another triangle, Jeff Anne and Jim. So there's a, there's a kind of geometric um, perfection about 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 the film. Um, there's another triangle, which is Jeff Kathy and Jose Rodriguez. Who uh, who Jeff calls a bad guy for bringing them together. Uh, there's another triangle of Jeff, Kathy, and Fisher. Uh, there's a triangle of Jeff, Joe, and Wit, and they and you can even argue there's a, a triangle of Jeff, Mita, and Eels. Uh, however, however briefly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So anyway, so the the yeah, and the the ending manages to resolve pretty much all of those. Well, is there anything else uh, before we move on that you want to uh, that you want to say about Out of the Past that I didn't ask you about? Yeah, I guess that there, there, there's one other characteristic of noir that is uh, part of this film, and that is what's uh, again, it's a got a French phrase "amour fou," uh, which means insane love. Uh, and uh, one way of explaining the obsession of the protagonist is that there's this um, uh, this obsession that somehow this this love they have for each other that is completely irrational and yet at the same time kind of uh, in, in, inescapable. Uh, and so that's the other key element of noir is this is this notion that there's a kind of a fate uh, that drives these characters. Uh, and and the fate is sometimes disguised as chance. Right. So the only reason that he gets pulled back in at one level is because Joe happens to be driving by and happens to see his name on the sign. And Marnie says it's a small world. And Joe says, well, it's a big sign. And I think. And, and I think the word sign is really significant. And I think that Jeff's actual name is significant. It's not Jeff Bailey, which of course could be making you, th could, 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 could be a reference to George Bailey from, uh, you know, the year before It's a Wonderful Life. But his actual name is Markham, right? So how do you want to spell that? M-A-R-K hyphen uh, E-M. Uh, he's been marked out in a certain way. So the film brings together this notion, you know, if Joe hadn't been driving by, but at the same time, Joe is kind of the instrument of of, uh, of fate, and uh, and you know what is it that drew Jeff back to 
California. Why didn't you go somewhere else? But you know, you can't escape these things. So the past is a scary place that's coming for you. So if somebody loved this film and said, I'd like to watch something else in this vein, you've named a whole bunch, uh, but if you could give two recommendations, if somebody was like, I want to, I want to go deeper in film noir. I would do, um, I do crisscross. And uh, then I do another one that's, uh, it's got a little bit of a, almost a co comic edge to it, but I love Dick Powell in a film called Murder My Sweet from 1944. Um, so those are those are those are two, but I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you three. You got to watch. You got to watch Tuck the Evil. It's it's just it's a great great film. All right. Uh, so what what do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm afraid Sam that it's not going to be a new experience for you because I'm going to I'm going to pull one off your list because I want an excuse to watch it, which is fast, cheap, and out of control. Yes. Uh, I have not. I confess I have not seen that. I need to see it, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. All right. Fantastic. I can't wait. Well, for uh, for Baird Fisher, I'm Sam Mulberry. Uh, we will catch you next week to talk about Fast Cheap and Out of Control. Mm -hmm.